Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay. I'm on a mission to help entrepreneurs advance society, and this podcast is part of that effort. Uh, today, we're doing our typical partner meeting format, having a bunch of internal conversations that I hope are pretty insightful to you. We're talking about big breakthroughs in artificial intelligence, China's evolving COVID strategy and what that means, some new inflation data and what we think the government's going to do about it. And lastly, Fong jumps into founder dynamics and how to maintain really strong and healthy relationships. I think it's a great episode. Enjoy. All right. Now Mike's going to give us a little color on the venture market. Mike, you're wearing your Star Trek collared shirt today. What's up with that? I don't even know what that means. It's, <laughs> it's like a bone white. Oh, you mean the collar? Yeah. That's what you're thinking about. Yeah, it's, it's a fashion thing now, apparently. It, there's a term for it. What's the term? I think it's called a shawl collar or something like that. I don't know. I don't know. That's too sophisticated for me. figure it out. They just, I just put on what they tell me to put on. All right. The, I'll, I'll throw a shout out, though. It's my friend's company, Road to Nowhere Clothing. Check it out. Oh, very cool. We'll a put that free, in the show notes. A little free we'll advertising. There you go. Yeah, advertising. Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about the market. What's going on? What are we talking about in tech cool. today? I mean, big thing this week is the uh, OpenAI's ChatGPT3 released. Everyone's talking about it. I thought, eh, should we talk about it too? But I actually think it's so important to talk about that. Uh, we should talk about it. So if you haven't played with it yet, I highly recommend just going in and playing with it. And you know, the aha moment, I think, for most people is when they realize that they're talking to a, like a computer. And this computer is forming thoughts and replying to you based upon the data sets that it has inside of it. And it's incredibly impressive. I think, you know, I started in this industry about seven, eight years ago now. That was kind of the original wave of AI. And we heard a lot of like AI funds popping up. We saw a lot of entrepreneurs building AI companies. AI was kind of its own vertical. And it feels to me a lot like what we hear in the blockchain space today, where people are building companies in the space. It's got its own dedicated funds, its own teams, its own companies. And AI now, what you're seeing, how it actually manifested seven years later is in the API layer. So OpenAI is an API that you can plug into, any entrepreneur can plug into and build their company on top of their, uh, on top of their API and on top of their AI network. Uh, and it's incredible. So where do I think this goes? What's interesting about it is first and foremost, I think for the last five years, we've been hearing a lot about like data. Oh, we've got all this data. We can monetize the data. The data is really interesting. The data, this. And very few companies have actually been able to monetize to the point where in our own conversations, we basically have just ignored that from founders and said, great, you might figure out how to monetize the data later, but we can't underwrite that in revenue stream. And uh, now that data might actually be everything. Because if everyone can plug into these, you know, whether it's through OpenAI or other competitors eventually... Uh, APIs and plug their data into it, it's really going to be a competition on who has the best data to power the best uh, AI and, and neural network. So uh, I think what we're going to see in the next few years is a bit of a revolution there in terms of how people build and scale products. People with the best uh, data lakes might end up having the best products. So a bit of a turn, but, but super interesting nonetheless. What I think is so momentous about this release is AI has been used behind the scenes in tech for a long time. It's machine learning, natural language processing. There's all there's layers of this stuff, but it hasn't been 
on the front end. It hasn't been at the stage where consumers actually see it's been used in small pieces, more or less, to enable things that humans interact with, like in, that are different levels of the tech. This is the first time where it feels like we're doing a lot of heavy direct interaction with the AI machine at a level where you can see the caliber and the quality of it is so good that there's real clear commercial applications. Right. We had a, I have a friend who's very highly educated and all of that went on and actually used one of the open AI uh, feeds to write the applications for his kids school program. Right. Yeah. So it wrote, it wrote a better essay than he did. Right. And so now sure. AI is getting to the level where it actually has real practical daily utility. And there's probably gonna be a flood of entrepreneurs coming in now, making it accessible and creating use cases around it. Totally. I think the uh, the essay one is an interesting issue when you think about it. A lot of people are like, well, is this going to write everyone's college essays? I think the short answer to that is no and yes. So now, before, you used to start at zero, right? And then you'd have to start constructing the opening, thinking through the paragraphs, writing the essay. Now, why not just start with the AI? So put in, hey, I need a 500-word essay for college. And then it'll pump out the answer. And then you can take that and you can go and tweak it, update it, change it a little bit. But 90% of the work is already done in structuring the essay. So I think we're, a lot of people are like, this is going to replace everyone's jobs. I actually don't really believe that narrative, to be honest with you. I think this will replace some people's jobs. It will create new jobs as well. But what it will really do is allow people to do their jobs 2, 5, 10, 50 times better or faster. And what gets me excited about that is, what does that mean for guys like you and I? And what does it mean for the rate of innovation? So if before companies could build and grow code X, you know, at 50% a year or 100% a year, because every time they wanted to grow more code, they had to hire an engineer. Now, if, if AIs like this can have the engineer write code five times faster, maybe that company can grow five times faster, or they can build a product five times faster, or they can improve features five times faster. All things that... Right now, let's be real. Like product innovation is still slow on a relative scale to how fast people want things. Right? You want your deliveries in 15 minutes, but adding a new feature to a product might take two, three, four weeks or months. What if we can do that in days or hours? So that's what gets me excited. I don't think this is the end of the world. I don't think Terminator is coming for us tomorrow, but I do yeah, think right. that this in the next three to five years will be a huge accelerant for the pace of innovation. I said, yeah. The every time innovation goes through a major milestone. You accelerate people's human productivity, right? You create new challenges to values, right? There's now a question of like, is it ethical to use this for your applications or your homework or whatever else? And then it creates an increasingly complicated regulatory environment, which um, the, the US system, which is designed by intentionally to be slow, is not necessarily well equipped to react to because these things continue to move faster and faster. So totally. yes, more complexity to come, but this is a pretty big milestone. When we look back at the timeline of technology, technological innovation, I think this is going to be one of those dots that has a little call out. Super cool. And I think the coolest part too is this is, you know, chat GPT three or some people are saying it's three and a half, four, which apparently is going to be 10 or a hundred times better is coming out in months, not years. And I think the pace of innovation here is going to be really, really fast. And now that they've released this, I think you're going to see a lot of their competitors start to release similar type products, which will only fuel the pace of innovation. And I'm excited to see what companies do with it and what entrepreneurs will be able to build on top of, uh, of this. Thank you, Mike. All right. 
Now it's time for Fong's business tip of the week. Fong, what do we got? Hey, so um, a few weeks ago, we talked about how to decide whether or not you need a co-founder. So today, I'd like to discuss what to do once you have one. So the co-founder relationship is really one of the most intimate relationships in business. Um, And like a lot of other things in life, like in a marriage, uh, this relationship requires a lot of work, a lot of time, and a lot of deliberate effort. So I pulled together some tips on how to maintain a productive relationship with your co-founder. First tip is from the beginning, make sure you're aligned on the vision and the mission of the company. So I mentioned this last time in a previous episode. You really want to make sure that you're aligned on the culture you want to build and why you're building the company. So, you know, the example I used before is if one person is gunning for an intense, high growth VC backed company and the other wants to build a slower, steady growth business that allows them to have balance in their lives. Well, if you're not in agreement on something as basic as that, you're going to have conflict every single day. Number two is making sure that you're crystal clear on who's doing what. Clarity and roles is absolutely essential. It's really easy in the beginning just to both make uh, decisions on everything together, but really it's not that effective way to make decisions in the early stages and definitely not as you grow. So look at the skills that you guys have um, with regards to each of the core functions and decide which co-founder has the final say on each. And then make sure that everyone on your team knows that. So every employee should know who they should be going to for what issue. Number three is to strive for honest, transparent communication. You've got to speak truthfully and speak often. You know, you've got to let the other person know if you're struggling so they can help and support you. Tell the other person if you've got doubts about a direction that you're taking or the company in general so that you guys can work it out. And then remember that conflicts are going to happen. They're unavoidable, but don't sweep them under the rug. Even though talking about conflict is hard, avoiding them is even worse because it can talk, it can foster resentment in a toxic environment. Number four, this is one of my favorite ones, is assume positive intent. This is something that I learned years ago at a leadership retreat when I was working for a big company, and it's always stuck with me. So assuming positive intent means choosing to believe that people are working to the best of their abilities with the information and the resources that they have. So if someone makes a mistake, or if something's not done the way that you would have done it, keeping the perspective that your co-founder is doing their best and is as invested in the success of your company as you are keeps you from going to a negative place that maybe they just don't care or they're incompetent. And that leads to a lot of misplaced blame and a lot of conflict. And then last tip, spend quality time in different settings outside of work together. If you weren't friends before, get to know each other as people. If you guys were already friends, continue to invest in that relationship and make sure that you still have that bond outside of the work stuff. You know, I didn't know my co-founder for long before we started our company together. And I found that the time that we spent in different situations was really valuable for us to see each other in different perspectives and add a depth to our bond. We took our kids out together and we got to know each other's moms. She spent a weekend with my family when we were doing a pop-up shop in Montauk, and she got to see me as a wife, as a daughter-in-law, as an aunt. And that, I think, gave her a deeper understanding that really transcended into how we work together. So to sum it up, your co-founder relationship is one of the key determinants of the success of your company. It's also really impactful to your overall well-being. 
having a bad relationship with your co-founder just sucks and can make you miserable. So it's really important to put the effort and investment in building effective ways of communicating. And that's all I've got. Wow. Huge topic and super important and super good insights. The um, building the relationship with people, even if it feels forced outside of the office, is so critical. Doing like a quarterly something outside the office, call it an offsite, but you do some business, but you also hang out. Yeah. It's a game changer for those relationships. And the assuming positive intent thing too is huge. It's not just for mistakes, it's what someone meant by a comment. It's exactly. really easy to build up scar tissue when there's really no need for it. Yeah, I actually keep that in mind through so many of my relationships with my husband, with my friends. Like, it's just a really, really helpful thing to keep in mind. I completely agree. Um, what do, what's your take on titles? Every now and then I'll see two co-founders come in to pitch and they are co-CEOs. Now they probably in the background have divided up a lot of the decision-making. Um, what's your take on the co-CEO concept? No, it's funny. When I started my company, one of the first board meetings we had, um, they asked us, well, you know, who's in charge? And my co-founder and I looked at each other, you know, I was like the business one and she was the, the creative one. And so, but we both wanted that CEO title and we said, well, maybe we could be co-CEOs. And I know that there are certain um, models where it has worked, but in general, I think someone's got to make the final call. Like there's got to be someone, you know, where the buck stops and it's just more efficient. It's just leaves less room for conflict. Um, so I think, you know, with regards to the co-CEO thing, like you've got to make a decision. I think in terms of other titles, as long as you've really gotten kind of, you know, the, the framework of like who's doing what, who's responsible for which core functional area, call it whatever you want. Right. And I think there are founder groups that have figured this out and done the co-CEO thing. But behind the scenes, there's one that kind of the group defers to. And that is the actual person with the decision-making responsibility. But it's, um, it's dangerous. It's a complicated thing. I find people psychologically connect to their titles. And so if they get a title, um, they will perceive themselves to be obligated or entitled to what that title suggests, even if it's, you know, a, um, kind of a bit more of a branding effort or a complimentary thing. So, um, you know, for those out there, be careful with that. Uh, and the co-CEO thing is complicated. It's not undoable, but it's not easy either. Thank you, Fong. All right, everybody. Now we've got Chris, who's going to give us an update on the market and usually some geopolitics. What's going on, Chris? There are three things uh, I think uh, worthy of discussion this week. Uh, let me start, as usual, with domestic data. First one, uh, so PPI, producer price index, just came out this morning and a little bit hotter than expected. So it's moving market a little bit. It's a measure. So just to remind everyone, PPI is a measure of inflation from the perspective of the producers. For a lot of folks in the market, this is the leading indicator of inflation. Um, since a measure of price changes before they reach consumers, Versus CPI, which is more of a, uh, a, current, a current measure. The headline PPI came in at 0.3% month over month, uh, about 10 basis points uh, hotter than expected. And this is on top of the October uh, data that was already revised upwards. 
Uh, what's a bit a bit more concerning, I think, is is the core, which is again X energy and food that came in at zero point four percent month over month, which is about twenty basis point higher than expected. But um, I always like to zoom out a little bit on a year on year level. Headline stands at seven point four percent, with versus sort of eight percent in October and eleven point seven percent. That's the high water mark that we reached in March. So we've come a long way uh, down from the peak, um, which is which is I think what market participants should be looking at more and talk about more. Looking ahead, though, we do have CPI next Tuesday. Uh, obviously, that's the one that that grabs most of the news uh, attention these days. And uh, FOMC uh, race decision, which will be on Wednesday. Likely, we're, we're going to get 50, 50 basis point uh, versus a 70 basis point that we had in the past couple of meetings. This particular PPI data that came out shouldn't move any expectation on that. I think the Fed would have signaled the market otherwise. Uh, but I do expect that potentially in the minutes that will come out in a few weeks, that the Fed will signal uh, that they will keep rates higher for longer. To be clear, though, that market expectations have already started to shift that way. I think, uh, you know, if we backtrack a little bit in March uh, or after a few months after March, market pricing, uh, market was pricing sort of a, the, the high, highest rates to, of a race to peak maybe in March next year and a drastic turn downwards. In the past few months, we've seen market expecting, you know, uh, rates stay sort of high for, until maybe Q3 next year. But I think more likely uh, uh, or a more realistic scenario is rates stay high for pretty much the entire year next year. It's going to take that long for inflation to finally come to back down to, to normal. And then maybe in 2024, we start to, to, to have cuts. That's the end of my first topic. Before I move on, Mark, any questions? Okay, Chris. So when we're looking at this, what you're saying is it's not that inflation is declining, obviously. It's the rate of inflation has kind of come down a little bit throughout the year. Okay. And given the fact that there's still more inflation than expected, we're expecting the, uh, the Fed to continue to raise interest rates and then hold them high for longer. What's yes. high now? Everyone talks about holding them high for longer, but yeah, I mean, high relative to the last 20 years. Well, everything's high relative to the last 20 years. Yeah. Uh, what is high historically? Is getting to a 5 or a 6% rate above yeah. the average, or is that actually hitting the historical norm? Yeah, that's a great question. So it depends on your, your obviously, your time horizon and your, your, you have to also kind of put the economy in context. But if we ever get to the point of hyperinflation, and uh, we're not there yet, and let's say we use the 1980s as a context, the Fed had to hike to 15 to 20% interest front end interest rate to combat inflation back then. So that's real high uh, in terms of interest rate expectations. Right now, the market is pricing in a 5% top rate that will likely reach by March next year. I think, um, I mean, there are a lot of debate. I think it's basically a 50 50 in the market out there whether this is enough. I'm more in the camp that we're close to what's potentially enough to bring back inflation down to normal over time, but we're not there yet. I think uh, potentially we'll adjust to 5.5% 5, 5 or even 6%. Um, but is it needed to get to 10%? Uh, not necessarily, because you know, 
there's uh, other indicators in the market uh, that's showing that cons- on the consumer's level, on a, on a household level, consumers are already sort of spending beyond their means a little bit. Household debt is going up, credit card debt is going up, uh, even withdrawals from your, your your retirement accounts are going up. So at some point, when consumers will have to will have to realize that they're spending beyond their means, and they'll have to slow down demand, and that will hopefully bring down inflation uh, faster than what's currently uh, in play. All right. Thank you, buddy. Let's keep going. Of course. Second one, I think, uh, very interesting, Russia oil price cap. So in, on Monday this week, uh, the EU, G7, Australia came together and set the highest price that they will pay for uh, Russian oil at $60 per barrel. Of course, the, the goal is to limit Russia's profit uh, to fund its war effort, which is a good thought and an and interesting strategy. Uh, and interestingly enough, it's a a very good countermeasure against uh, OPEC, which is effectively an oil cartel that, that shouldn't exist. Um, there's a lot of sort of positive coverage in, at, at news media um, uh, uh, on this, but I, I, my personal view is that unfortunately this won't necessarily uh, make a dent uh, uh, or really impact uh, Russia's balance sheet per se, because uh, what's missing from this pack is, is China and India two of the largest oil consumers in the world that Russia is partnered with. And just to make it very concrete, Russia exports about 10 million barrels a day of oil. China imports about 8 million barrels and India imports about 4 million barrels. So yes, you know, these contracts are signed over time. There's usually a duration around it, but if uh, the G7 and Australia and the EU were to decrease their or set the price cap, which is effectively a tariff on, on, on oil, China and India can step in and substitute all the demand over time. So how effective this, is, is this uh, uh, oil price cap is, is uh, yet to be seen. And I, my personal view is that unfortunately it's not going to be too effective. But if the, world, the rest of the world can sort of come together more as, as, as uh, in unison and sort of um, use this as a countermeasure long-term against OPEC. I think this is a very interesting experiment. It seems like this is just one of those, we need to put a headline out and say that we did something and it will placate most people. But the actual, when you sharpen the pencil and dig into this from everything I've read, it's not going to actually have too much impact or, you know, really change much. Yeah. I think that's also sort of Ukraine's uh, perspective too. I think, uh, but I agree, but you know, and the positive of, of all of this is at least we're trying to do something, and this is an experiment that's that's worth noting by the public community. If it works in any way, shape, or form, or even if it signals to uh, you know the producer of the world that this could be effective and this could bring more countries into the fold, that in itself is uh, uh, you know an, an effective political strategy in, in some way. So, all right, let's keep going, buddy. Good stuff. What's next? Sure. Uh, China. So last week we talked about uh, the protests, you know, the potential strategies that China could come up with, uh, uh, you know, at the back end of, of the protests regarding its COVID zero policy. Sure enough, on Wednesday this week, um, Ch- China basically came out, sort of revamped its entire COVID zero uh, strategy, at least domestically. So local officials can no longer lock down districts at a time. Up until this point, basically for the past two and a half years, 
any local officials in China can basically, without any evidence, lock down 80% of the city uh, right away. That's no longer allowed. They can still lock down specific buildings if COVID cases are identified. COVID patients and, and, and contacts can now quarantine at home instead of being shipped to basically government facilities. And uh, for domestic travels, folks no longer need to uh, show this sort of green QR code and PCR tests and yada, yada, yada. That's, our, that's really has been really cumbersome for, uh, for businessmen and, and, and really trade domestically. Um, all that are gone. So it's very drastic, frankly, a lot more drastic than pretty much everyone expected. But it's important to highlight that that's only domestic. The, the foreign travel, sort of international travel is still basically as it was before. However, the government has indicated that over time, uh, this that will be also loosened. But and these, the the time the time frame for it to happen has been accelerated. So three to six months instead of six to twelve months previously expected. What, what what's the implication of this? Well, number one, uh, definitely good news for some of the uh, companies like Apple that's very much dependent on uh, still to this day China China man, Chinese manufacturing. My hometown, the iPhone city. You know, people are going back to work, iPhones are being produced. So the lead time on new iPhone 14s is, is, has now decreased because of this. But will this still just disrupt supply chain on a broader scale? I think so, because again, international travel is not free. Still very cumbersome. I think uh, to travel to China, it, it still requires seven day, seven day quarantines. Eventually that's going to be a more uh, a zero three policy, meaning zero, zero days in government facility and three days at home. Um, that will take six months. So supply chain will, will take time to adjust. But nevertheless, this, this is a positive step to the right direction. Hopefully, uh, this will be bring down inflation. It will be one, one of the factors that brings down this inflation uh, in the U.S. and the rest of the world. But it also means, doesn't it, that everyone in China is going to get COVID? Because eventually everyone's getting COVID, yeah. is my sense of it. And yeah. if they're not stamping out every little spark of the fire, it's going to spread like it does everywhere else. Uh, is that going to create a whole set of new problems when everyone starts showing up and testing positive? Or are we at a point in society in the world where everyone's kind of ready for it and they know what it means and they know how to handle it operationally? Yeah, that's the, that's the, that's the question I think everyone's asking right now. Um, I think it's likely that we will, ex you know, we should, we should expect some sort of disturbance in society and, 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 and people are, even though the, you know, the restrictions have been loosened, my sense is that people are still not willing to travel, especially older folks in China are still not willing to step, step, you know, step out of their apartments and, and walk around freely. So it's going to take time for people to feel comfortable again. And by the way, the government is really trying to try to increase their, their vaccination rates among elderly, especially 60s and above. Um, that's going to take time. So and, and as long as we're not seeing um, a jump in, in sort of death rates, I think we, you know, the, the country can probably manage. But this is also one of the theories why they're not trying to open international travel as fast as they're opening domestic travel, because they don't want all these, uh, they don't want to deal with complications, both from you know, domestic and, and, and international travel or so at once. So it's a sensible thing to do. But my hope is that uh, it doesn't translate to higher our death rates. Right. This sounds like the first step, like he you know, secured his power. And now it's taking yeah. the first step towards a, probably a method, like a, a, a robust plan 
to eventually open everything back up over a period of years or whatever it is. That's it. Is that the right guess yeah. that's happening? Yeah, stability, uh, you know, as, as we talked about last time, is is the name of the game in China. That's what the government wants over all else. And they really have to d- debate uh, what's the right move here to, to increase the stability and, and economic recovery. This is, uh, to me, the, definitely the right move. So um, what's, what's ironic among all these things is, uh, you know, in the background, the government is also targeting these pro- protesters, locking down their... <laughs> Their social media uh, accounts and, and uh, you know God knows uh, what uh, was happening to them. So that's always unfortunately in the background. Yeah, it doesn't matter if you're right. You just pissed yeah. off the wrong person. Exactly. Okay. Thank you, Chris. And a reminder for everybody: Chris is an SEC registered RIA, and uh, nothing he said should be taken as financial advice. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to that. Um, I just want to put an exclamation point on what Fong was talking about, about maintaining and strengthening founder relationships. It is so, so, so important. And it's the little things, assuming the best, getting time together, um, remembering that you're humans and hopefully friends. So good luck with that. Uh, This is a huge problem that a lot of people face. They have bad founder dynamics. Uh, very, very, very important to proactively invest in that. If you want to get in touch, just feel free to reach out to me. You can get me on Twitter at MPD. Otherwise, we'll catch you next week.